0: Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Walls Dairyport, over 65 years of ice cream artistry, Main Street, Bucksport.
1: Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. (laughs)
0: Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns began in 1993 with support from University of Maine Cooperative Extension. Of an age and attitude that we thought we had vanquished the worst of racism and misogyny. We've been surprised, I think, that both have come roaring back back to darken the national psyche. And Roxana Robinson's new novel, Dawson's Fall, shows us why we shouldn't be surprised. Welcome. Roxana, back to Talk of the Towns.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah.
0: Um, Roxana, a little introduction, is the author of five previous novels, including Sparta and Cost, and we've had the pleasure of talking with her about both of those uh, novels here on Talk of the Towns, as well as collections of short stories and the biography of George O'Keefe, A Life. Um, her work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, The Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal among other publications. She's received fellowships from the uh, National um, Endowment for um, the Arts and uh, the Guggenheim Foundation. She was president of the Authors Guild from 2014 to 2017, and she teaches in the Hunter MFA program, dividing her time among New York, Connecticut, and Maine. So we're glad you're back in Maine. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Um, You have written a novel about your great-grandfather, who became the publisher and editor of the Charleston South Carolina News and Courier shortly be- after the end of the Civil War. How did you come to write this story?
1: Um, well, it was it was very interesting. This was a story, great-grandfather is not very far back in, in anybody's family history, and so I had known about him, and I had known about other members of my family, and um so it was a qu- quite a dashing, melodramatic story about this Englishman who um, grew up in London and then came to the South in 1861 to fight for the Confederacy, which is an odd choice to make. Um but he in the family, the story was that he was someone that we admired because he was principled and he did not stand up for the values of the confederacy and often spoke out against them in the years after the civil war so so we thought of him as a kind of a hero. But it was not something that I had any interest in pursuing.
0: Because you were born born and used a, a Quaker background to kind of foster your values.
1: It wasn't just Quaker. It was <laughs> um, I was from New England. You know that that side, of my mother's that was my father's side uh-huh. of the family, uh, or part of the side, my father's side. But um, on my mother's side of the family, we were very much from New England. And in fact, my great 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 aunt was Harriet Beecher Stowe. Mm. So it seemed to me that any connection my family had with slavery or the Old South had already been dealt with, (laughs) (laughs) and I wasn't going to be able to find the words to stand up to Great Aunt Hattie's book or to really say anything new about it. So I had never focused on that subject. Um... But I have in my other books, and uh, the reason that I write a book, that I come to write a book, is that I find something that's so interesting and so confusing and troubling to me that I have to write my way through it to understand it. And I forget why I started focusing on Dawson, but I did. And first I wrote a piece about him for the New York Times, Um and they they had a series called Our, The State of Our Disunion or something like that. So it was about the Civil War. And I wrote about it for them. And then I, I just thought more and more about him. And I thought, who was this man that combined such opposing paradoxical hmm. ideas? And one was the, the this notion of principle and the belief in human rights and civil rights. And he after the war, he refused to carry a gun, and he spoke out on behalf of um, the rights of everyone concerned um, and had a reputation for that. And so how could that person have chosen to alter his life so radically as to cross the ocean and fight for the Confederacy, which stood for slavery? So how were those two things? um, How is it possible to reconcile those two things? And I went into the subject because he was a member of my family and and we all we all want to understand our families and if you had a great grandfather who was a famous murderer you would want to know about that and in some ways you would take pride in it because mm-hmm. it was a crazy story and everybody knew it and you'd say yeah he was a nut and he ended up you know spending the rest of his life in prison you would find some way to reconcile yourself mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. history um and so and Ideally, we can be proud of our ancestors. That's what we would prefer, not to think of them as nuts who ended up in prison. But, um, but you want to know who you were and know who you came from. You have a very intimate, proprietary feeling mm-hmm. about your an- ancestors that really doesn't extend anywhere else. You, mm. you, you, you're a part of them, and if you can't make sense of them, then you can't make sense of yourself because mm-hmm. they created you. So I became more and more interested in Dawson and how he could contain those opposing views. And then um, as I began to look into this subject, it became clear to me that I was also addressing a larger issue, which was... Um, Dawson was a man of principle. He was a man uh, who was charitable and li- led a charitable life. He was a good Christian. He was a Catholic, actually. Um, and so, but he couldn't have been alone. And and the woman he married, my great-grandmother, came from Louisiana. She was a devout Christian. She was an Episcopalian. And um, she led a life of charity and virtue and generosity. And, and they were not alone. So there, there were five and a half million white Southerners, before the Civil War, they were not all brutal sadists. Many of them were people who considered themselves decent and charitable and good Christians. So how is it possible to contain both of those w- ways of looking at the world with with the, the institution, the unconscionable institution of slavery? How could those coexist? Mm-hmm. So that's what I wanted to learn and understand. And once I... Um, focused on Dawson, I was in for a huge series of questions and digging for answers, trying to understand my own ancestor, and by extension, the South.
0: Mm. And you chose to write this as a novel rather than as a piece of history. Um, what was the choice there? Did that come later, or did you, did you think you were going to do a, a long um, you know, piece, journalism kind of thing?
1: Uh, well, as I say, the first p- time I wrote about him was yep. was journal. It was sort of yeah, journalism or history, um, but that it was a big question throughout the process. Was it going to be a novel or a biography? And because I had written a biography, I was very comfortable in that form. And I f- and in fact, when I was writing O'Keefe, I I thought, um, you know, this was really better than writing a novel because I had the characters and the plot all given to me. All I had to do was put down the story and do the huge research, of course. But um, so in some ways, this was um, an easy subject for a biography. And he was, there have been books written about him. And he's a person whose story is really interesting. And it's part of history. On the other hand, I couldn't, bring myself to give up the two tools that a novelist has, which are dialogue and interior monologue, I couldn't (laughs) bring myself to abandon what goes on in people's minds as they're walking down the street or when they're having a conversation. And those are the great things. Those are the things that elevate the great novel so that we know what Anna is thinking as she's driving to the train station. We know what she thinks when she sees people on the street when she's in that state of mind. Tolstoy enters into her mind and creates a scene of chaos and despair um, as she's looking at people in the street. So um, that is so powerful. It's such a great um, form element in in the novel form, and the other the other thing is dialogue. And mm-hmm. you have to be able to say the words themselves. And as a biographer, No one has ever transcribed conversations at breakfast that your biographical subject is having. So you're left with paraphrasing conversations that someone has remembered. Um, And I didn't want to do that because dialogue is the way we relate to other people in the most intimate and passionate and unguarded way. And it's dialogue that really reveals our relationships to other people in the world. So for those reasons, I couldn't give up the novel form. But at the same time, there were so many wonderful documents that I came across, and I couldn't give those up either. There are letters between the two of them. There were letters from Dawson to his family during the Civil War. There were his editorials that he wrote for the paper. There was congressional testimony, transcriptions, word for word. Um, There was Sarah's journal, uh so there were and i felt bad in the beginning i tried transcribing all those things and then i thought i'm really doing a disservice to them um because by implication i'm saying your my words are better than yours and and that wasn't true in every case they mm. were they were they wrote wonderfully well about the subjects they wrote about so i ended up with a hybrid creature um using both Uh, the words of other people either published or unpublished and I show that in the text so every time you come across a a font that changes that's someone else's words and Mm -hmm. I give the sources at the end Mm -hmm. of each one but I've written it as a novel so that those sources are meant to be part of a continuing narrative. Mm.
0: Well, let's introduce um, our listeners here on Talk of the Towns to um, uh, Frank Dawson, or Dawson as you often call him, and uh, I'll have you read a passage from, um, from the novel, uh, page six, and then we'll introduce his wife, Sarah Morgan. Um, but go ahead with, with uh, the piece about Dawson.
1: Dawson believes in God. He's devout. In education, a life without books, is death, he wrote to his younger brother, and in telling the truth. He's certain of his convictions. He has a vision of Charleston's future. He wants industry, tourism, railroads, shipping. Bring the mills to the cotton is his motto. He is friends with priests, ministers, both black and white, rabbis, policemen. He knows everyone in city politics. He belongs to the exclusive St. Cecilia Society and the populist Hibernian Society. He believes in drawing the community together. He also believes in the rule of law, and he defends the rights of the freedmen. Once, soon after the war, he tried to put Negroes onto the aldermanic ticket. He arranged the first political meeting between colored men and Democrats in Charleston. He'd rented the hall himself, an empty store on Hayne Street, hoping they'd form an alliance. They hadn't. When the big earthquake hit Charleston three years ago, Dawson led the relief efforts, working with both black and white leaders. His opinions have made him some enemies. He's not a native. He was born in England. And his opinions are not always shared by Southerners. Some of his readers don't want to put the war behind them or give black people political power. Some readers are enraged and accuse Dawson of lying about his rank, Captain. His war record, Army of Northern Virginia, Mechanicsville, Gettysburg, served under Longstreet, and his U.S. citizenship, real. He's been challenged to duels, though he's denounced dueling and helped to ban it. He's received death threats, which he ignores. He is opposed to violence on principle. When he gets a threat, He won't even change his route to the office. Dawson doesn't mind all this. He's certain he's right. He has Charleston's best interests at heart. He holds fast, and usually his readers come around. Though, when his readers resist too vehemently, or when his candidate loses, Dawson yields and supports the winner. He believes a newspaper should reflect the views of its community. It should lead, but it must also listen.
0: What an amazing, interesting, and complex fellow this is, and and um, you realize in his life um, we're seeing something unfold in our in our history um, at that point in time. Amazing, amazing.
1: He was—I he. I mean, I think one reason—I realized that one reason he could be such a paradox was that he came from another culture. Right. So he had no problem in saying this is the rule of law. You must allow the black people, the black freedmen— to do what the law says. And his right. southern friends said, you don't understand. This right. law is crazy. We have no intention of allowing this law to stand. Mm. But he was absolutely – the great thing about Dawson was he never wavered in his convictions. Mm. And that was both his strength and weakness. He be- he always believed he was right. He had God on his side. He had the rule of law on his side and principles.
0: And the tradition of the press.
1: And the tradition of the press. Right,
0: which is, I think is, is... – Great. So let's, let's um, learn about his wife, Sarah, who, as you say, comes from Louisiana. So um,
1: this is from Sarah's diary, April 30, 1861, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Sarah Fowler Morgan, 19 years old, woke as it was starting to turn light. The air was cool and damp, and she heard the quick pattering rhythm of rain on the leaves outside. Across the room, in the mirror on the armoire, was the reflection of her high bed, shrouded in netting. At the windows, the tall white curtains shifted slowly in the rainy breeze, belling, collapsing. The shadows, the sound of rain, and the dim, pearly light filled the room with something like sadness. Sarah felt the sadness like a waft of air. It was too early to get up, and the rain meant the trip would be postponed. She turned over, settled her face into the pillow, blocking out the morning light, and slept again. The Morgans were Southern by then, though like most Southerners, they'd come from somewhere else. Sarah's great-great-grandfather, David, had come from Wales in the 17th century. The Morgans were bold, opinionated, and principled. They believed they could succeed at whatever they set out to do, and for the most part, they did. They settled in Philadelphia, becoming successful merchants, doctors, and lawyers. Sarah's great-uncle, John Morgan, founded the first medical school in the country. Her grandfather, George, became an Indian agent and a wealthy merchant. He was a friend to the Lenape chief, White Eyes, and godfather to his son, George Morgan White Eyes. When the chief and his wife were murdered as troublemakers, he wanted treaties, by the American militia, George took in his godson and sent him to Princeton. George tried to found an interracial colony west of the Mississippi, and he nearly succeeded. Thomas Gibbs Morgan, George's grandson and Sarah's father, was born in Princeton, New Jersey, where he went to the university and became a lawyer. But he, too, was an adventurer, and in the 1820s, he and his brother Morris set off down the Mississippi. They stopped in Baton Rouge, then settled there. They both married planters' daughters and practiced law. They became Southern. In Pennsylvania, the Morgans had called dark-skinned people friends and kin. In Louisiana, they called dark-skinned people servants. Judge Morgan and his family didn't use the word slaves, though they owned nine of them.
0: Hmm. And I love the the interior piece that you started with. Um, It's um, evocative of her, and you allow her to bring in um, a sense of place Um, that then is backed up by the story of, of the family moving from Wales to Philadelphia to the south. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So they came into something you describe um, as a network, the network of the South. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that and then perhaps read that section about the network.
1: All right. Shall I read that? Yeah,
0: read that first and we can talk about it.
1: The network of friendship and kinship was spread across the South like a great shawl, patterned by education and upbringing, stamped by manners, fringed with wealth. It was loosely woven but extensive, covering the entire region, from Virginia and Georgia to Texas and Kentucky, from a certain class, a certain tribe. Membership depended on family, background, education, values, those imprecise definers of the American class system. Money was not essential. You could be a member without money. And money alone was not enough. But most members... But most members had some money, or they had had some at some time. Most members were born into the tribe, but you could join through marriage or education or circumstance. You could not force your way in. You needed an introduction. It was a powerful system that conferred on its members trust, respect, and preferential consideration. By the time Dawson arrived in America, he had joined this tribe, the Confederate officers would become his brothers in combat and his friends for life. Their mothers and sisters would welcome him into their houses and families. It was these men who taught him the South.
0: Hmm. We're so happy to have Roxanna Robinson with us here on Talk of the Towns this morning. We're interviewing her about her um, new book, Dawson's Fall. Um, so the backdrop for the novel is really Charleston um, uh, and um, a period of of time that I learned from you um, the people of the South called Redemption not Reconstruction. So tell us about Redemption. That was really about reasserting the old system.
1: Yeah. So Reconstruction, which is much better known, uh, was roughly the 10 years that followed the Civil War from about 1865 to 1875. And after that, The South was really um, drawing up its resources. And for 10 years, they had resentfully submitted to the new laws, to the fact that the slaves had been freed, emancipation was the law of the land, and that these people who had been slaves were now permitted to um, become educated and to vote and to hold office. And because there were so many slaves in the South, the slaves... um, were elected. They elected each other, they elected themselves, and they went off and and held office. And this was a source of deep resentment to the whites who were um, accustomed to thinking of themselves as the ruling class. Um, And as somebody said, and I quote in the book, slavery made made every white man a lord. And so they deeply resented this um, being deposed of that Position in life, and during that ten years of Reconstruction, gradually the Union forces withdrew, um, who had been stationed there to enforce these new laws, and the South resented them and didn't want them there, and they slowly withdrew, and because of different political forces, and the Southern whites, and in particularly, uh, this was true in South Carolina, and there was a man called Ben Tillman who later became governor, and he was furious at the way um the 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 southern history was progressing the southern movement and he was determined and he was not alone to take back the south to redeem the south from this um this change that had been wrought by emancipation so his job and his cohort's job was to take back the south for the whites and that was um that was a very dark and troubling time. It was full of violence, and it was during redemption, which lasted for, depending on how you count, it's a one decade or several decades, and it was then when all, all those statues were erected hmm. that we're now um, arguing about. But it was um, the imposition, the physical imposition of white power hmm. over um, the rest of the population. And um, it was it was a time when... Uh, it, violence was visited on black people who were trying to vote, and it was kind of a return to the brutality of slavery without the the law of slavery mm. so it was It was really a terrible time in mm. the south
0: two threads from that one one is that you you take this back um, you said that you read um, our, our friend 's uh, book Albion Seed. Uh, and 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 trace this history of violence of how we, people respond to the world that they're in through violence back to um the, the borders of Scotland and England uh, <laughs> that's kind of a, a hard thing to read right that we We brought that over and and instead of um the uh, that the kind of the northern view of city on a hill, we're going to revert to what we knew of of the the raids and so on across the border.
1: Yeah, it was it, that that book is is wonderful Albion Seed. Um and uh he David talk, Hackett Fisher. So yeah, right? yes, yeah. right. Um, David Hackett Fisher just yes. so his name is clear. Yeah. Um and he describes these these groups of people coming and and he the earlier generations of of immigrants had been Puritans and they wanted a religious life and they were willing to give up a civilized life in the old country in order to practice the religion they wanted. But this group was a later group and they came, the Puritans came in small groups and was mostly couples or small families. But the people from the border countries came in huge intergenerational groups, three generations at a time. And they were uh, described as when they arrived in Philadelphia as being Uh, tall, red-haired, blue-eyed, lanky, and insolent and violent, and Philadelphia had been founded as the city of brotherly love, and there's a quote, I think, from Benjamin Franklin saying that he's seen them, and he's urging them to keep going, (laughs) (laughs) keep going to the interior, and they'll love the mountains. (laughs) And so, as according to that book, that's the way um, Appalachia became Appalachia. It was settled sure. by people who, who uh, were used to making their own laws and had this long history of tribalism and um, warfare uh, visited on each other's tribes. And in a place where uh, the border countries, which were very far away from any source of other power mm-hmm. and they were really ignored – they formed their own groups that were tribal, that were based on clans, and those were the only people they could trust, and they were extremely violent towards each other, and they they stole each other's cattle and burned down each other's houses. So it was really rough justice, and because they settled in the Appalachians, there was, there was no source of, of uh, state justice there, so they carried on that same mm-hmm. way. Um, they were not the only source, sources, so they settled. Uh, they moved down the spine of the Appalachians and moved into the South. So they were part of the Edgefield um, culture, which I describe mm-hmm. later in the book. But um, but the other source of violence, which had nothing to do with the border counties, was slavery. And slavery, as an institution, depends entirely on violence. You can't talk someone into being a slave. Mm-hmm. The only way slavery can be enforced is through physical violence on the body. Um, So violence became a part of the South, the Southern culture, starting in 1600, and it meant that Southern men were used to carrying weapons constantly. They were always aware that they were standing on a volcano, and that any moment these strong, powerful people that they were telling were the, um, their inferiors might realize that they were not their inferiors. Mm. And so it was weapons mm. that made the difference. And so weapons became a part of the Southern culture. And that's why the second amendment was written into the constitution was so mm. those, those, uh, members of the congressional conference could, could maintain their position in society. So that kind of violence, um, had nothing to do with Appalachia. It was, well, the two melded in, Mm. in Apple, you know, in Southern society, but slavery was the source of this business of carrying weapons. And it was because of that idea that only white people should carry weapons that made uh, what happened in redemption so explosive because, because during redemption, the black people were inculcated into the national and local state militias and they were given guns and the white men couldn't stand the sight of black people carrying guns.
0: So you describe um, in some wonderful detail um, the story of the towns of Hamburg and Edgefield in 1876 um, that really um, allowed that. And we're not going to have you read it because it's, it's, it's long, but uh, recap that situation for us. And it, it has to do with this um, um, black w- militia.
1: Um, So there was a famous incident that took place on the 4th of July in 1876 in a black town called Hamburg. And there were black towns that sprang up after emancipation. People didn't want to stay in the quarters on plantations, and they formed their own communities. And this was a town that had been founded earlier as a mixed-race town. It was a market town, and it was right across the river from Augusta, Georgia, across the Savannah River. And um, right outside that Black town of Hamburg was a white town called Edgefield, and that was white, and it was um, settled by uh, the, the inhabitants were plantation owners, and there was a good deal of animosity between the two towns because Hamburg was full of people who used to be slaves and used to be owned by the mm-hmm. plantation owners, and that that knowledge that they were now free was a source of constant irritation to the men from Edgefield. And Edgefield was a uh, an, an inheritor of this Appalachian um, brutality, and there's a terrifying book written about it by Fox Butterfield, and Edgefield, it turns out, is the most violent town in America and has a long history of violence, which has to do with race, but also this um, Appalachian... Culture, um, so putting the two towns side by side was was kind of explosive um, throughout the that first period, that first decade after the Civil War, and the boys from Edgefield would constantly irritate the people in Hamburg, and they would ride their horses through at a gallop. And remember, before paved roads, when you had dirt roads, any horse going through uh, going on a dirt road kicks up clouds of dust. So the Edgefield boys, as they were called, would go galloping through the towns of Hamburg just to irritate people. And there were small things like that that took place all the time. But on the 4th of July, this this particular year, um, there was a parade and the white towns in South Carolina did not celebrate the 4th of July because it was too revolutionary for them. The stores were closed, but there were no parades. But the black towns had parades and they were celebrating two kinds of independence and everyone knew that. They were celebrating freedom from the English king and also freedom from the white master. So this day, um, the black militia marched down the main street of Hamburg and the whole town gathered, mothers and children and old people and there was a fifer and they all sang and the men, 83 men in in this troop carrying rifles, marched down the street, and they sang glory, glory, hallelujah. And they read the Declaration of Independence. And at the other end of the street, there was a buggy, a horse and buggy with two white men who were from Edgefield, and they watched the whole performance. And as, they, as the marching men reached the podium in the center of the street, the white man turned his horse and drove it right at the marching men, and there was a confrontation over whether or not the white men could force this state militia, government owned group force, um, to give way to these two white men in a buggy. And that was the beginning of redemption, really.
0: Mm. Mm. So now we have Dawson, um, English by birth, and he falls into this network of the South. He and his wife are part of that. And then he falls into the role, really, of publisher and editor of of the, the, the paper. After the war ended, Um, he writes and editorial writes the articles or helps or has reporters write the articles of what he's seen. He editorializes against violence, and that's not just the racial violence, but dueling and and other other forms of violence. Um, His fortune and his family's fortune is tied up in this newspaper. His views begin to to uh, erode um, some of the the. the readership tell us a little bit about what he he and his wife were facing as that that situation evolved
1: so Dawson was editor of the paper for uh, twenty five years and he he had always because he believed in his convictions because he believed that um, his principles were correct that they were based on virtue and idealism and they were and he was a kind of visionary for the south and so he believed he was doing the best that was possible for the south he really didn't have a a lot of self-interest it was for the south which he loved and charleston whom he loved and he felt that um these these um this misbehavior was kind of errant and he had to correct it Um, And it had always worked before because he was charming and he he was such a believer Mm. so that he could persuade people um, that he was right. Or in the event of when he backed uh, a different candidate and it was Wade Hampton who was a Civil War hero who won, he then – Backed Wade Hampton and said, "Okay, then this is who our new governor is, and we will will be on your team." And so he he really did want to want the best for Charleston. So he had always managed this, um, and he believed he still could. But at this point, towards the end of this book, he um, he's sort of run out of options, and he has made some enemies, and he. Because he believes that he believes actually that people are good at heart. Hmm. And so he always thinks he can talk his enemies into becoming friends again. And and that had been the case in the past. But now he's made some powerful enemies who have created a rival newspaper. And and this man, Ben Tillman, who was from Edgefield and who was from a completely different culture and who is envious, deeply envious, of the culture. Big and little C culture of the Low Country and Charleston. Ben Tillman takes a bead on Dawson and wants to destroy him. He's never had something like this happen before. And the Low Country is—it's kind of like Boston. I mean, it's a center. Of, it's uh, so Charleston is not the capital of South Carolina. The capital is Columbia, but Charleston is the is the center of culture. It's the oldest um, establishment in South Carolina, and it's. It has beautiful architecture, a long sense of history, um, and education, and a real feeling for for beauty and and sort of the virtues of of a, a, a city on the hill. Even though it's based on slavery, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the great paradoxes of the South. But um, it it held itself um, to a sort of elevated account. Um, I mean, a, a place. And so it was. So the people from the, the western part of the state felt excluded and resentful. And they were provincial, and they were sort of—it was called the red dirt country, and they felt left out and, and deeply resentful. And so they used Dawson as a symbol of the low country, and they accused him of being a kingmaker, which he kind of was, but he wasn't doing it, you know, it wasn't— um, it what he wasn't doing it for self interest he wasn't doing it in secret he was he would get behind a, um, a candidate and say this is whom i support and that mm. would that would be a huge amount of support so um, but but Tillman cast him in a very negative light and started creating crowds of angry white men who felt dispossessed everyone every white southern southern man felt dispossessed after emancipation they had lost the way they had lived and the sources of their income um, so they felt deep resentment, and Tillman dexterously made, turned this resentment, this general resentment, into a spear against Dawson.
0: And um, with economic pressure, the newspaper was losing readership, which was the lifeblood, and Dawson didn't have anywhere to turn to to get new investors or new readers.
1: Yeah, the, the second paper was, by all accounts, a kind of a gossipy rag, and it deliberately undercut the prices of, of Dawson's paper, and it stole his reporters, offered them bigger salaries, and it was lively, and Dawson was disgusted by it. He said they don't have serious reporting, they don't, don't report on Europe, they don't report on the important things of the day, but it was kind of juicy and hot, and people couldn't resist it.
0: No parallels to uh, our modern day, uh, we'll talk about that. <laughs> no one has later. ever done that no. since. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and what was the impact on the family, on Sarah and and the children?
1: Um, uh, Dawson believed in his obligation as a father and as the head of the family, not to let people know. He mm-hmm. did, wanted wanted to keep his family from feeling unsafe. So he carried on as though everything was fine. And he, I think he believed that he could make it come mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. He could make it all turn. Um, so he was trying to hold things together with his hands.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, we're not going to um, you know, talk about the end of the novel um, in, in reality because I really want people to read this. It's a wonderful, wonderful novel. But one of the things that you begin to tease out is that the violence against um, slaves... Um, also has parallels with violence against women um, and the the same um, kind of thing and you draw from real life uh one of dawson 's neighbors to illustrate this misogyny um, uh, by uh, by talking about dr McDowell. Tell us a little bit about dr McDowell and this is again this is a real character this is a real character right?
1: yeah um he 's a strange character, and with almost everyone else in the book, I had um, th- written documentary evidence that they that these people had written themselves and I have documentary evidence about McDowell but it's not what he wrote but I but I know what he I have things that he'd said records of that and he was an alcoholic um, and so everything he did was colored by alcohol but he was a a man of very low principles he was involved in insurance fraud and other things that were evident of a, evidence of a man without any kind of respect for the rule of law or principles of behavior. Um, and yeah, he was a, a terrible husband and uh, cruel and dismissive towards the women that he made advances to. Um, and it was kind of a, a shocking contrast to Dawson, who really believed in honor and um, and the best part of of um old-fashioned paternalism towards women i mean if you were if you were a wife you should be honored and cherished and and actually he was he was kind of a feminist he thought women should be able to work he felt his wife should mm-hmm. should work as a writer for mm-hmm. the paper she chose not to but he encouraged that and he encouraged her sister to become a stenographer and sarah said oh it's so crude and you'd be working in an office with men all the time and he oh. said well that's what's wrong with that i have a stenographer it's fi- it's fine so he he believed in in um Treating women with respect um, but also allowing them to be humans and McDowell was really the other end at the other end of the spectrum for mm. that and and thought women were um, sex objects, and to be treated, however, he felt like treating them at that moment
0: and he um, has a wife, a mistress, and then he um, engages with one of Dawson 's household um, which Again, um, this is re- real it's real <laughs> you didn't make this part I up. did
1: not I could not <laughs> have made this <laughs> uh,
0: and the, and, the, and the wife and the mistress live in the same house.
1: yes, right in so. some mysterious way right, that's right. hard to figure out
0: well let's let's move on um, again this this notion of of uh, um, Dawson believing that there's a this kind of an honest, virtuous basis for rule of law um, and then uh, a P. Butler. One of the characters from Edgefield, is that right? Mm -hmm. Tells one of his, his, somebody else, Harry Mays, there is no Constitution now. It's been 100 years since the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution has played out now, and every man can do just as he pleases. Wow.
1: I know. That's a white man speaking to a black man
0: Mm
1: -hmm. on the eve of this terrible. Disaster that takes place on on Fourth uh, of July, eighteen seventy six. It's it's actually right after that. It's it's during a trial, um, and it's it's a terrifying statement. And when you sent me that, I was rereading it, and tears came into my eyes. It's mm. it's just such a tragic um, commentary on the way we treat the Constitution and the forces that are still at play against it.
0: Mm.
1: Mm. So um, while I was writing this book, I thought that I was writing about a particular part of history, but the more research I did, the more I read people's statements and understood their feelings, it became clearer and clearer that I was writing about a strain of response that is still very prevalent Mm. today, and I was writing about the legacy of slavery and the legacy of that period, which are all over the place today.
0: Mm. We're. I'm happy to have Roxana Robinson with us here on Talk of the Towns as we talk about her new novel, Dawson's Fall, published by Sarah Crichton Books um, this this year. And um, so, this notion of of research. Um, how did you do the research for this wonderful novel, which is based on on your your, your great grandfather?
1: Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, everyone in that family seemed to be writers. (laughs) So there was this enormous wealth of material, and all the Dawson papers were given in the 1940s by my great-uncle to Duke University there at the Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library. So everything is there. Dawson's handwritten letters to his parents during the Civil War, who were in London. I don't know how those letters got to do but they're there sarah's letters to her brothers and sisters um dawson himself published a memoir about his confederate service sarah wrote a diary which was published about um the civil war in baton rouge it's called a confederate girls diary and then there are unpublished parts of that as well um then sarah's brother James Morgan, wrote a book called Recollections of a Rebel Reefer about his his memoirs. Mm. My grandmother, Ethel, Sarah and Frank's daughter, wrote a memoir, which is unpublished but it's very useful. Um, and then her brother, Warrington Dawson Jr., was a journalist and a sort of a diplomat in, in, who ended up living in France. And he wrote about his childhood. So, and so there are... And then plus the fact that Frank Dawson was an editor, and so practically every day for 25 years, I could see what he was thinking about. Mm. Um, There were his words. He's talking about the opera, talking about... you know, slavery or the unions or what they should be doing, he had an opinion about everything I can tell you mm. so um
0: so is that daunting to to have all this information, and you must have had a similar situation um looking at the life of George O'Keefe it's just lots of stuff and, and winnowing it down
1: yeah um it's, it's both daunting and splendid right. uh, because uh it did give me a sense of being able to go into the mind of a character and read everything. Um, I remember Victoria Glendinning, who wrote a wonderful biography of Trollope, and she wrote an introduction, and she said she'd had so much fun writing that book. Um, but doing the research, that you want to put everything in that you know, but there's some things that you can't put in. And she said, one of the things I couldn't find a place in this book for was the fact that he used toothpaste, which was unusual at that time. And I thought, wow, that's – <laughs> she's right. You can't really put that into a paragraph about Drollope. but But she got it into the introduction. Sure. So there were, there were things that I didn't put into the book, mm. but which informed my knowledge about the characters. Mm. And I did – I was able to feel as a novelist that I really did understand them. I understood their way of thinking. And the other part of it was, I mean, so on the one hand, I couldn't have done this if, if there hadn't been so much material. I wouldn't have felt that I knew them. But the other part of it, which was which was, I hadn't thought of in the beginning, was the fact that I'm part of their culture. So I can intuitively understand things about them that I wouldn't be able to understand about somebody else's family. Hmm. But there were moments in which I felt deep recognition, in some cases kind of you know, raising the hairs in the back of my neck. And and um, Dawson, for example, uh, loved music. was a was a wonderful piano player. Loved playing and singing. And he would go to the opera or to a concert, to a, a piece of music he'd never heard, and he'd come home and he'd sit down at the piano and play it for the mm. family. Mm. And that's exactly what my father did. So reading that, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is really my family. Mm. And there are almost phrases. They're they're principles that are passed down from generation to generation. And I quote in the beginning of the book um, a a statement made in a family Bible, uh, um, which was written in 1700 about the Morgan family in Wales. And I realized that he's talking about something, a piece of family history that was started 700 years ago and that he, their family had been repeating that every generation for 700 years. So family history is very marked and deep, and we don't usually – you're not aware of it. It's like swimming in water. You, it's just, you think every family is like that. Mm-hmm. You, that's mm-hmm. what a, every mo- father would say, every sure. mother would say. Sure. But your family is forming you and forming your beliefs. So that was really part of how I learned who they were.
0: Right. So Dawson and his family don't get justice. I can reveal that, I think. Um, and as you um, wrote this, um, you, you you wanted the family to carry on. I mean, it, it did carry on, but not in the way that they expected. And that is is part of the the writings, at least in the in the three novels that we've talked about on on Talk of the Towns, is that families don't get to decide. Chaos happens, and you've you've dealt with how families deal with that chaos. What did you learn about this particular family, Dawson and his wife and, and children?
1: Um. It's interesting because, as a novelist, you are usually you you finish the book at at a moment that feels like an ending, and so in both in Sparta and in cost, I was able to choose a place that was kind of the um, the minor chord mm-hmm. that ended this passage of high drama and challenge and and um, conflict. but in this book, i couldn't because um that would have been before the ending of this family's story. So mm-hmm. I I had to write a sort of epilogue about um what happened later and it 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 just reminds me of how life deals with us that we we don't have the choice and we will always be visited by conflict and terrible um rifts and and feelings of um this feeling of resentment and unfairness, which, uh, and those things are real. But that's what history's made up of. N- nobody gets fair treatment.
0: Mm. So um, we've alluded to the parallels between that time and what we're facing now. Um, <laughs> you are a keen observer of what's happening now. I believe that. Um, how, have, how have you made sense, or have you made any sense, between that time and this time? And, and is there any hope? <laughs>
1: Um, I certainly, as as I said, as I was doing the research, it took me five years, and I became increasingly aware that I was I was looking at things that were happening. Um, I was looking at things in history that were still happening right now. Yeah. And I do think that um, we pass on culture from generation to generation. And what I was seeing was the current iteration of this feeling of resentment and racism and the use of violence as part of that. And I think that, that those that slavery's twin legacies in this country are racism and violence, and we have not found a way to deal with them. I think that one reason we haven't is that there is still a deep sense of denial, um, particularly in the South, um, about what happened. And uh, there are still many people in the South who say that the Civil War was not about slavery, it was about states' rights, and they won't enumerate those particular rights that were so important. Um, And I think it's because I I do understand it, having written from the point of view of Sarah, who lost everything in the war. um, There is a sense of resentment um, and the feeling that the North can't understand what it's like to lose everything. And you don't understand the way our culture was was defined. Um, But I wish that – and I thought about um, Germany and how Germany has responded to their own dark history – and have acknowledged it and have made museums out of Auschwitz and said this is what happened and it can never happen again. And we acknowledge it, we were wrong to do this. And the South doesn't seem to want to do that. I think that that would be the way out if we could start exposing to ourselves the fact that we were complicit as a country. The North was certainly a beneficiary of the system of slavery. It was a huge economic engine. It's really what allowed us to become a world power. Um, It allowed us to take over the cotton trade from India. Um, So if we could recognize what we had done and acknowledge that violence was a part of it and that racism is a part of it, it would make a huge change in the way we could move forward. But I recognized when I was thinking about this that um, for Germany, their dark period was only 15 years. So anyone can so look from back
0: the, at, from the beginning of Hitler's rise to yeah. the end of World War Two and, and a little bit after that. Yeah, right. And right. so
1: and it's over. So anyone can look at their own family and say, "Yeah, my great grandparents or my grandparents were sympathizers, but my parents were not." You know, and now mm-hmm. we've moved on, and we all know this. And mm-hmm. we we I've done a my PhD on Auschwitz, and and so everyone is aware of it as a historical presence, but they're not bound by it. But in the South, slavery can, was started in 1600 and it lasted for over 250 years it's very hard to look back at your own history and say we were complicit for 250 years and it doesn't matter well uh families pass down their their beliefs and from generation to generation so we have a lot of work to to do but i think i do think it's important for the north to understand the south right. and to understand why why the civil war was so devastating um And we need more conversations
0: mm. Mm. so um this this particular um, book um I understand um this is the first time you 've read your own work for an audio book. What was that like? Because, <laughs> well, of course, we asked you to read some things, and, and that came out really well. So that must have been – that's a long book to read.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I wrote about it for the New Yorker. So if you're curious, you yes. can write about – you can read about the experience. But it was um, – the publisher sent me an audio tape uh, that read by um, – by someone that they recommended. And I, and he was very good on, on one part, but he was terrible reading Sarah. He was an Englishman, and reading Sarah's voice was was really <laughs> uncomfortable before. And I said, well, I didn't think he was great, and what, what, what would you think about me doing it? And I'm not an actor, I won't be able to do the accents, but it is my book, and I do mm-hmm. have a feeling for it. And so he, he said, great, we'll do it. Um, and I did have... Uh, I was pre- I I was certain that I was going to read the whole book in the voice that you hear right now but at certain times other voices got into my head mm. and so Helene for example the the Swiss nanny speaks with a French accent which is um a family member of mine who has a very strong French accent and her voice just came into my head and every once in a while someone would speak in a southern accent that just came into my head. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, it's, it's kind of a, a mishmash, um, but it is my voice and it was fun because I do have a very strong feeling about the words I've used and the way they should represent the feelings and the thoughts of mm. these characters so it was it was it was wonderful. I enjoyed it enormously mm-hmm.
0: so you 've been doing a lot of um, speaking about dawson 's fall you 've got a couple of um, events coming up um, tonight you 're actually speaking at Matt Doesdan High School at uh, 7 o'clock, uh, 5.30, I'm sorry, um, hosted by the Jessup Memorial Library, Northeast Harbor Library, and Southwest Harbor Library. And then uh, Tuesday morning, the 16th, you'll be at College of the Atlantic for their summer coffee and conversation series. What's been some of the reactions that you've had um, to your your talks about Dawson's Fall?
1: Um, they've been really interesting. Um, so periodically, I will get uh, one Person usually a guy who's very challenging about something, wanting to know about research or do I think one man saying, um, did you change any of the historical events in this? And I said no, I ha- no I have not. And he said, and then he raised his hand again and said, did you did you make any alterations? And I I said no, no I actually didn't. So the, it it brings up I think I think the subject the idea that I'm trying to find. Um, a way into the mind of the white southerner and and not forgive him for everything but also to understand him or her Mm. um, for the way they've behaved I, i think that's challenging because i am using the word slavery i am talking about violence and there are people who are both northerners and southerners who are uncomfortable with this this vision of of the south which is which is not one that's that's normally presented
0: Great. So, um, as you um, think about um, taking this book to the South, you've 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 sent it to individuals. What do you th- sense the reaction might be um, as you take it take it South?
1: I think it will be mixed. I think there are people. It got a wonderful, um, very thoughtful, very. Um, perceptive review in the Charleston Post and Courier, Dawson's own paper. And certainly there are lots of liberals in the South who recognize what racism has done and and want to change it. Um, So I think from liberal people, I will get a positive response. And I think from people who feel challenged by this and threatened by it, um, I'll get a negative response. Mm, mm. So, but it's a self-selected group of people who come to the reading. So I'm hoping I'll get more friendly responses than unfriendly.
0: Well, I've told you that I read this book on the Allagash River, uh, telling my friends about <laughs> it um, o- over the campfire. It was a great book to bring along. It's a great novel, <laughs> Roxana. Thanks you so much for being with us. I remind folks that they can um, visit with Roxana and hear more about the book again tonight at 530 at the Mount Deserton High School and on Tuesday the 16th as part of College of Atlantic's uh, Coffee and Conversation. We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday morning of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you've got comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle of University of Maine Sea Grant, 10 to 11 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Bond House Highland music recording. Thanks again to Roxanna Robinson, author of Dawson's Fall, for being with us this morning. And thanks to underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host, for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.